This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, podcast fans, what's going on? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode number 124 of the Moranalytics podcast. Today is Friday, May 31st. So if you're a regular listener to this show, you know that this week is different than normal weeks. I On Tuesday's episode, I did a best of volume one. Today, I'm doing the same with a volume two. Reason being is that I'm in the process of packing up and moving this week. Just got a lot of stuff going on. Not a big deal. I'm just going from one town, Bradenton, down to the next uh, Lakewood Ranch. Me and my family were moving there. Not a big deal. I just, I knew that I was not going to be able to find the time this week to put together two brand new episodes because of that reason. And I'm also a guy who believes in continuity. I didn't want to skip episodes entirely. Don't want to give fans a chance to forget about me in this show. Though, of course, that that's hardly even possible. And in all seriousness, I, I just didn't want to go a full week with doing nothing. So I settled on doing a couple of best of episodes for this week. Before things get back to normal next week, on Tuesday, I'll have a brand new episode on Tuesday. For today, I've chosen to replay interviews I've had on the show with two of the biggest icons in the sports world. I was very fortunate to have them on the show before. Game changers, if you will. Adam Schefter, widely regarded as the best insider in the NFL. And also, legendary sports agent, probably the biggest and most famous one ever, Lee Steinberg going to replay both those interviews today. I had Adam on the show back in episode number 23, all the way back May 24th of last year. So a little more than a year ago, and it kind of changed everything for this podcast. Up to that point, I had several guests on from the Buffalo sports media, a couple of national folk. That was great, and it helped me grow. But to have Adam on the show really brought some street cred to this podcast, and it would go on open a lot of doors following that. So we had a great talk. I was kind of stunned, by the way, to learn how unassuming and modest Adam Schefter is. How a series of like random things that did not work out for him would lead to him becoming the best known NFL insider in the world. And by the way, when you listen to this interview, my sound was kind of whack back then. Okay, I didn't I didn't have a great grasp on audio editing back in those early days. Had much cheaper gear. And you'll probably notice not a huge one, but a little bit of a, a sound difference. Sound a little bit shrieky at times, a little sillabant, but whatever, man. There was, there was no way in hell 
I'm going to run a first series of best of episodes and not included interview that I had with Adam Schefter. Because like I said, that was a huge game changer for Adam to take his time and do an interview with me and unknown like that. It, it just meant a lot to me. So that's one. After that, I'm going to go right into an interview that I had with Lee Steinberg, the real life agent behind the Tom Cruise, Jerry Maguire movie. I mean, this guy is representing a who's who of sports stars during an unmatched career. Guys like Troy Aikman, Steve Young, Big Bad, Oscar De La Hoya, a couple of Buffalo Bills Hall of Famers, by the way, Thurman Thomas and Bruce Smith, among countless others. That interview was back in episode number 52 in September of last year. So that's today's episode. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you've heard them already, hopefully you'll enjoy these interviews again. If not, check them out. First up right now, ESPN NFL Insider from last May, Adam Schefter. Okay, guys, I'll keep this part short and sweet. If you're a sports fan, this man really, and I mean really, needs no introduction. My guest today is King of the NFL Insiders, Adam Schefter. Adam, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate you having me. Let's start here. Let's talk about growing up. You grew up in Belmore, New York, which is in like Nassau County. What team or teams were you a fan of growing up as a kid there? And did you have a couple favorite athletes? Well, yeah, I loved all sports growing up. I loved, at the time, the New York Islanders were in their heyday, and I loved Brian Trottier and Mike Bossy and Clark Gillies and Dennis Poffin, even though the Rangers fans didn't. So I loved them. I loved the Knicks growing up. The Yankees, I would watch every game, every single game growing up. And I really liked the Jets growing up. But I will say this, as you get older in life and as you make this your profession, you, you really lose that fan interest, I would say, in college. As hard as it is for that to believe. And I know people can't believe that. They, they would say, who do you root for? I root for, first and foremost, the people that I respect and like and the most. That's who I root for. And then I root for my fancy teams. <laughs> those, are the other, those are the other people I root for. And I, I, you, you really don't have after, you know, I've been in the business since 1990. You don't have favorite teams. They're all your favorite teams. You know, you, you, you wish for good things for, for everybody. And, and there's, you know, that's just how it works. You really don't have any favorites. But growing up as a little boy in Nassau County, New York, those were my favorites, yes. As a lot of people know, you ended up going to college at Michigan Firstly, what made you decide to go to Michigan? And secondly, were there other schools that you considered at that time? Yeah, I I wanted to go to Penn, and I didn't get in. I got rejected. I wanted to go to Tufts, and I got rejected. Um, so really, my top two choices at the time were schools I didn't get into. And at that time, my cousin, who was a year older than me, he had gone to Michigan. And yeah, I, I, I was looking for a school... It's funny now to think about it that that had rah rah spirit and great academics and all the things that Michigan does. And when I enrolled as a freshman in the fall of 1985, the school was not nearly as popular popular then as it is today. Right. Uh, it, it just you know I, I I know there are a bunch of kids in my neighborhood who are applying and there are people with much better grades and test scores than I had who who aren't getting in. And when I applied, it wasn't as tough to get into. It wasn't as popular. 
back then. And this year they had 71,000 applicants, a record 71,000. Wow. I don't know how many they had the year I applied, but I promise you it wasn't 71,000. <laughs> so I, I was fortunate enough to eat gone in and get one of those slots. And, you know, I, I went there because I thought it would be a great academic institution with great athletics and combine all those things and was far enough away from home, yet close enough that you could get back in an instant. And right. basically went there for all those reasons and, and discovered 20 more while I was there. Now, you know, a younger generation of fans, I'm talking about real young fans, might not even know this, but, you know, your craft, long before you were known for breaking NFL news on a daily basis, was that as a journalist. You were an editor at the Michigan Daily, the college newspaper. What was that experience like for you as, you know, you began to cut your teeth in the world of journalism? Well, again, it was it was something that was accidental, just like uh, Michigan wasn't my first choice of schools initially. Uh, going to work for the student newspaper was something that just sort of happened along the way. I wanted to be in a fraternity, and there were about 50 guys going for 10 spots, and I didn't get in. So I went down to the basketball office to see if they needed somebody to pick up jock straps and hand out water bottles, and they didn't. So I went to the basketball office to see if they needed somebody to pick up jock straps and hand out water bottles, and they didn't. And I've always been the kind of guy that always liked to be busy. So I'm like, well, no fraternity, no football team, no basketball team. What what can I do? And I said, you know what? Let me try the student newspaper. That at that point really was the fourth or fifth option for me. And it was born out of desperation and rejection as much as anything else. So I went down there, started working there, and grew to really love what I was doing there as a newspaper reporter. And it was only, you know, midway through my college career at Michigan that I recognized, wow, maybe I could try to do this for a living. I, I really didn't think I was good enough or talented enough, or I always thought that these were jobs that other people did. And, you know, as crazy as it sounds, you know, nobody said to me when you're younger, you could do anything you want to do. I, I just thought that I'd, you know, go to law school or be a salesman or do something like that, that was very well regarded and respected and just try to work hard. You know, I thought sports was something that was was beyond me, too good for me, not attainable. And so I just started working for the student newspaper. One thing led to another. I was applying for newspaper jobs. My senior year of college couldn't get one. Hundreds of rejection letters, hundreds, no joke. So when I couldn't get into a newspaper and start off at an entry-level job, I went to graduate school uh, at Northwestern for one year and got my master's in journalism. And while I was there, I was working for the Chicago Tribune on the side. And that was an unbelievable experience. And again, kept looking for a job for two full years and finally got an offer from the Los Angeles Times covering high school sports in the Valley. So it was like a part-time job. And I went out celebrating New York City uh, because it had been such a long time coming. And after I got back from doing that, uh, there was a message on my pillow from my mother that I could still see to this day. Uh, that Barry Forbes, the sports editor at the Rocky Mountain News, had called to offer me a job or at least bring me out for an interview. And, and so I called him the very next morning, and he wanted to know how fast I could get out there for an interview. And I knew I wasn't calling just to make small talk because I had looked for a job for two years and nobody even called. Right. Nobody. Nobody. So the fact that he was calling told me something was different. So that morning I flew out to Denver. He offered me a job. I decided to pick Denver over L.A., because they were going to let me cover the Broncos and the University of Colorado and moved out to Denver in September 1990, not really knowing anybody, anything, um, just determined 
to make my way in the field of sports reporting. That's That was going to be my next question. So you went up in Denver in 1990. At that time, did you ever even begin to envision, you know, what your future would turn out to be back all the way back in 1990? You mean like what I'm doing today? Yes. Yeah. No. I mean, what I'm doing today would be so far beyond anything I ever could have imagined for myself. I was perfectly content and thrilled to be the Denver Broncos newspaper reporter and NFL reporter for the Rocky Mountain News and then the Denver Post. And I did that job for almost 16 years. And it was at that time, and it still might be today, the longest continuous stretch of time that anyone had ever covered, that anyone had ever covered the um, Denver Broncos. I was the Vic Carucci of, of the Denver football world. <laughs> and and I loved it. And I really, you know, I'm not going to say I didn't have any designs to ever leave it. But again, if I had done that my entire career, I, I would have been perfectly fine with that and had no issues. And so I did it for almost 16 years, loved every minute of it. Uh, they paid me to cover the Broncos NFL while they won two Super Bowls. But in essence, they were really training me how to handle an NFL locker room and learn the rhythms of an NFL season and get to understand what it takes to cover a team in this day and age. Now you talked about as you get older, you start to lose that fandom when you get into the line of work that you did. And I'm talking about as a writer before you even became an insider. When you first became a writer covering a professional team, was it a little bit intimidating at first? Did you have to overcome, yeah. you know, a little bit intimidating being in NFL locker rooms and dealing with players, you know, that you grew up watching or, you know, that you were in college and they became stars. Was that a little bit of an adjustment for you having to, you know, overcome being intimidated a little bit? Well, 100%. I mean, you know, you're going out there and you're uh, talking to John Elway and uh, who's a superstar at the time. And, there's no doubt that it's a huge adjustment. And so, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's only natural. I think that, you know, you're, you're 22, 23 years old and you're starting out and, you know, you don't know very much. And, you know, you, you know, it's funny now, you know, I, I don't think there's a person in the NFL world that you'd be unnerved by talking to, you know, you, you've had the great fortune and honor of meeting interviewing, being around, uh, so many people in this great profession. And back then it's also new. Like you've seen these guys on TV, you've read about them in the newspaper and, and yeah, it it was, it was unnerving. Like I look at young people today, uh, coming out, people that I've met with back at Michigan at the Michigan daily, the first college newspaper that I ever worked for the, the things that they do are so much greater and so much better than anything that I ever did when I was that age. Like I was, I was green beyond green. Like I was throw up green <laughs> and, 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 uh, these people today, they come out so much more advanced and sophisticated and knowledgeable than I ever was. I, you know, I just think that the next generation is doing so much better. They're doing much better work than I ever could have hoped to have done at that age. And it's very impressive. And, and again, you know, it's just another example of, uh, looking into some of these things by, um, not doing much more than really just working hard and caring a whole lot about what you do. So in 2004, you joined the NFL network while also writing for NFL.com. Not long after that is when you started to really make a name for yourself in the mainstream. I mean, you made a a name for yourself covering the Broncos long before, you know, but that was Denver fans. I'm talking mainstream America. I don't know. It feels like there's a path to media starting for you that happened overnight. 
Well, I, I never viewed it as becoming a huge media star on NFL Network. All I viewed it as doing was literally doing my job every day. And I don't mean to, uh, you know, invoke the Patriot way on, on Buffalo fans or anything like that. But I mean, that's, that's all I was trying to do. Um, that's all I try to do to this day is back then again, uh, I loved covering the Broncos and the NFL for the Denver newspapers that I did for 16 years. And I, and I never viewed it like, boy, I'm, I'm really starting to make inroads here. And, and, uh, this is going to be the makings of, you know, some sort of star studded career. And now that I'm in TV on NFL network, now I've made, I, I've never, I've never felt like that. And I'm really grateful that I, basically got to cut my teeth and grow up professionally in the field of newspapers, not being treated on TV. They, they call the on-air people, the talent, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, I, I was never called the talent, you know, until, you know, I was 40 years old, you know, 30, 38, 39, 40 years old. And I, I'm really grateful for that too, because, you know, that, that, that that's probably not really good for uh, somebody's ego uh, at that time uh, when you're very young to be told, you know, you're a talent and have people uh, looking after you the way that uh, we're, we're fortunate enough to have in the field of television sometimes, um, you know, getting you schedules and, and uh, you know, picking up a sandwich where you have to draft all day. So these are things that, you know, would never happen in the newspaper world where you're transcribing tape, you know, around the clock and writing stories and picking up ideas and traveling and early morning flights. I love that. I mean, that was, you know, that was, that was my world. So, when you say, you know, media star, you know, whatever that is, I, 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 I could truly say to you, I've never once stopped to think about it that way. Being a writer by trade, was it a difficult process getting used to being in front of the camera for TV? Well, it's interesting you asked that, Patrick. I would say this to you, that when I was in Denver and I moved there, I was 23. And again, typical of me always wanting to be busy. Right when I got started on the Broncos beat, Channel 4 at the time, which was at the time, I think it was a CBS affiliate. Um, they, you know, they, they don't want to pay anybody. And I would have done work. I would have paid people to do work. And right. So they say, hey, you, you want to do a segment on the weekends? Like, come on TV to talk about the Broncos? And I'm like, yeah. Like, I thought, wow, how cool is this? You know, you get to go on TV. I mean, I never, ever thought that it would be something that I would try to do for a living. So on weekends, you know, for the first, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine years, uh, I would go and do a segment where I would talk to the host and answer questions. And they would give me like a $50 gift certificate to the Burger King or a $100 gift certificate to the men's shop where I could go afford to buy a sport coat that I couldn't afford on my own. Hmm. And, and so um, to me, I couldn't believe that they would give me anything to train me. And I didn't get much TV training, but there was a taste of it, enough so that when the NFL network did call in 2004 and offer me a job that I had enough of a base of knowledge to be able to go out and not embarrass myself. So again, it was just accidental. If I had been in New York and been in an area where I was from and knew people, um, maybe I wouldn't have sought out that work on the weekends, but because I was in an area where I didn't know anybody and I, and, and, and I was just looking to try to do things to get ahead. I said, let me do some TV work on the side. And that's what I did. I did some TV work, not very much, but enough to, to begin to wet my feet so that I would not completely embarrass myself once I did get the opportunity to do more television. Was there a particular scope you had where you first realized that you're about to become a major player in the NFL insider game? 
you keep referring to it that way. Like, you know, there's major player, major star, big, again, I just never have thought about it like that. Okay. Let's scratch the major player part out then. And let's just, and let's just talk about if there's a particular scoop where you realize, you know, you're first about to join that class of other known NFL insiders. Patrick, it's just, it's just, it was not the way that I thought, you know, and there's nothing that I look back on and say, boy, this is the story in which I really arrived. Uh, again, I, I, I just view it as, you know, I've done this for 28 years now and there were a lot of years with a lot of early mornings and late nights and, 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 you know, I'm very proud of it. I wouldn't trade for anything, but I, I, I view that, uh, those early mornings and late nights more than I do one story that, that helped me arrive on the national insider scene. What led to you going to ESPN in the summer of 2009? Well, that, that also uh, was another thing that wasn't planned at all. And my contract was coming up at NFL Network, and uh, it was very disappointing at that point in time, the way that the negotiations went, because it really wasn't any negotiation. It was a, a situation where they, they, they made an offer. Um, they never budged off at one cent when, when I declined to accept the offer, they pulled me off the air. And when they pulled me off the air and essentially made me a free agent, um, I really had no idea what I was going to do at that point in time. Uh, I was wondering where my next work stop would be. And ESPN came in and fortunately offered me an opportunity. Now, when I took the job with ESPN, I look back on it and shows you how naive I was. I took the job not knowing what I was going to be doing for ESPN at the time. They never described to me what I would be doing. I took the job in 2009. They launched the 9 a.m. Sports Center that August. So I got the job, and right after I accepted the job, about, I don't know, two, three weeks later, the man that I basically give the most credit for hiring me, Seth Markman, he we were talking and he, and he goes, well, how do you feel about doing Sunday countdown? I go, what do you mean Sunday countdown? He goes, you're going to be doing Sunday countdown with Chris Berman and Tom Jackson and, and Mike Ditka and Chris Mortensen. Yeah. And I'm like, whoa, I'm doing Sunday countdown. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, Oh my God. Like I, you know, I, I love that show. I love those people. I have such great respect for what they did. Always watch the show every Sunday. And to think that I was now going to be doing anything on that show, you know, even if it meant getting those guys coffee, I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. And, and so, Again, when I took the job, had no idea that's what it would be. And who takes a job in this day and age not knowing what they're going to be doing? But I did. It shows you how dumb I was. <laughs> and 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 it just sort of went the way that it did. I ask every writer and reporter I have on my podcast the same question. You know, through the years, you develop a lot of friendships among peers mm-hmm. that you work with, and I'm sure some rivalries too, from you know other networks, other stations, things like that. On one hand, you're friends with some of these guys and girls, and on the other hand. You always want to be the one who breaks that big scoop. Is it a little difficult sometimes to navigate like that line in the sand between, you know, friendship and colleagues and trying to beat someone's brains in basically, you know, every time when it comes to breaking a story? Because it could probably, I would imagine it's a pretty cutthroat business. I think all businesses are cutthroat. I mean, I think whether you're trying to sell insurance or build houses or sell stocks, everybody's competing for business. Everybody. Uh, saying that, I, I think that there are some longtime people in our business that I have tremendous respect for, for the way they've done it, the amount of time that they put in. Like, you know, I, I've got an unbelievable relationship with Chris Morrison. I consider an older brother. Mm-hmm. You know, I, lo- I love him like a brother. He, he's been 
um, incredible to be around, to learn under, to work with. And, and I love Mort. Like he, I mean, he's family to me and he knows, you know, my personal life. I know his personal life. He knows what it's like to do this job better than anybody out there. I know what it's like to do his job as well as anybody out there. And, and I've got a great, healthy respect for him. And same is true. Peter King, uh, who's done the job, you know, as long as I can remember. And, you know, I used to be a stringer for him back when I was in Denver in the mid 1990s. I was one of his 32 stringers. And then he promoted me to one of his, what they called core stringers for sports illustrated for years, where you would be one of his four or five trusted NFL reporters that would file information to him on a weekly basis to help him with his notes column. Mm. Um, and that, and that was unbelievable you know, getting to know Peter and Peter becoming a truly great friend to where, you know, when he was having his 50th birthday party, he invited me and I invited him, um, to mine. And, you know, he's been a great, great friend for a long time. Peter is, and he's a great human being. And, uh, I, I've even developed a really nice relationship with Jay Glazer, who, who I've been a competitor with for a long time because, you know, he and I have worked at this as long as we have, where he's done this. Um, I, I could say, I could, I could brag and say I've done a little longer than he is, I believe, because I started covering this in 1990, and, and I think he was like the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. But but both of us came from nothing in the newspaper world. So uh, I, I guarantee if you had him on, he'd say the same thing, but I, I, I've got a lot of respect and admiration for everything that he's done uh, throughout his career. Uh, and the amount of time that he has served the business. And so, you know, am, am I competing with them for news? Yes. But do I have great respect for what they've done and who they are? Absolutely. Who would you consider your biggest influences professionally as you rose up the ranks? Well, when I was back in Michigan, there were two men who were instrumental to me um, coming up. One would be Thomas George, who worked for the free press, went to the New York times, went to NFL network, went to the Denver post, uh, done some work for super bowl nation and just a very thoughtful, classy guy who first influenced me to be able to go into the business. Again, I said to you that I never knew that people made a living. And when I was covering the Michigan basketball team back in 1987, he was the one when I was flying to Minnesota one time that said to me, you could do this for a living if you'd like. And I'm like, really? And he said, yeah. And so that helped convince me that, wow, maybe I can do this for a living, make it real life. And, and that wouldn't have happened without Thomas George. And while I was in college, uh, I was a research assistant for Mitch album while he was doing his first two books, one on Bo Schembechler, the next on the fab five at Michigan. And I used to read Mitch's writings back then and be in complete awe. Like I couldn't believe that anybody could write anything that good. And, you know, I tried to write like him in college. And when he asked me to help him out and do my little things for him, I, it was, uh, again, I would have paid him to be able to do that. And right. I like to tell people, I, I like to tell people to this day that, um, you know, I helped him on the bowl book, I helped him on the fab five. And you see the first time that he didn't use me, on a book was Tuesdays with Maury. So you see how instrumental my contributions were to his success. <laughs> Going back to ESPN real quick, I'm sure there's one or two people in particular that you have a closest relationship. I, I mean, I'm sure you got a ton of friends at ESPN, but is there one or two guys that you have to, you would probably consider having the closest relationship with there? You know, I'm fortunate that I get to work with so many great people, really. I mean, more it's like a brother, you know, and uh, I'm very close with him. Um, but 
you know, all the people that we work with on Sundays. Uh, I, I love the guys that we used to work with, Chris Berman and Tom Jackson and Key and Chris Carter and Mike Dicka. Like, we, we had a great time. And, and I, I love the current guys, too. We have a great time together as well. Uh, Matt Hasselback and Randy Moss and Charles Woodson, Rex Ryan. Um, it, it, you know, it's just like anybody who spends time together, you, you, you know, you just have a good time with these guys and, and you do the show on Sunday and everybody goes through it together. And then we go together after the show to, um, what we call the war room and watch all the games together. And so when, when you're spending that much time with people and, and there are a lot of great producers, I, you know, I love the producers so much too. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, you know, I don't think of myself as a talent. I think of myself as a regular guy and, 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 they're all the regular people that, you know, that I've always thought of myself as. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I identify more with them than people who come from star backgrounds. <laughs> but, but before moving on, I, I wanted to let you know that I had Adam Kaplan on the podcast last week and he credited you for recommending him for a job at ESPN. Gave you a lot of props for that. Just want to let you well, know. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, uh, there have been a lot of people that have been very gracious to me, uh, and helped me throughout my career. And, uh, it's an honor to be able to do that for other people as well. All right. Now, you're known for breaking news. I might be breaking something to you here. I don't know if you know this, but did you ever know that you are indirectly responsible for the birth of the name Bills Mafia? <laughs> uh, does that tie to Stevie Johnson? Yes, I can agree. I'll give you the short version if you want. I, I interviewed a guy recently, you know, the, the founder of Bills Mafia on a podcast. And this is the story that he tells me back in 2010. Stevie Johnson dropped that pass, you know, and he tweeted out blaming against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yep. Yep. He essentially blamed God, you know, question God, whatever you want to call it. You must've been busy that one day or something because you didn't get around to retweeting it until the next day. And mm-hmm. back in that time, like in 2010, when you retweet something like nowadays, if you retweet something, it don't matter on your timeline, a million people can retweet it. It's only going to show up once. But back in the day, every time someone retweeted it, it would show up. And because, you know, you have so many Twitter followers, you retweeted it that next day. And like, I don't know, thousands of people were retweeting you. So it kept going on and on and on and on. So a couple Bills fans, and this is the story they tell me, started messing with you a little bit. They started trolling you. Have fun. But, you know, they were being trolls at the end of the day. And because it was considered old news, because it was the day before, they had a hashtag called Schefter Breaking News. And they would say a couple stupid things on purpose, probably just to get under your skin, which it did because you ended up blocking a couple of them. So they ended up saying they, they were talking amongst each other and they said, you know what? We're like a mafia. We're the Bills Mafia. And tweeted it out once. And that's how the birth of Bills Mafia came out because of you. So Adam Schefter helped create Bills Mafia per sources, correct? Yes. <laughs> but it well, did, you know. I, I remember that, and and uh, you know, and I think that's one of the the, the uh, tough parts of Twitter, social media. Like, you know, I really don't live on there, you know. Right. And sometimes I I don't check things, and and I'll post like I'll have somebody that, uh, you know, someone at ESPN they'll, they'll call me like, hey, you know, you, you post that news like that that was out there like two hours ago. I'm like, it was like I I, I didn't know that. Okay, uh, I I don't have any alert set. I have no idea what's going out there. And I'm just doing, again, the best job I can to try to keep up with. So when I saw that Stevie Johnson thing the next day, yeah, that day, I definitely missed it. Definitely didn't see it. Saw it the next day. I was like, wow, look at this. So you put it out there. <laughs> right. Obviously, it, it incurred the wrath of Buffalo Bills Kingdom. 
and, uh, and, and helped give birth to the Bills Mafia that exists today and uh, runs rampant in Orchard Park and the surrounding parts. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean, they meant it affectionately. You know what I mean? They credit yeah. you for, for the term. And then guys like Nick Barnett and Stevie Johnson and like Sean Marion signed, and they started using that tag. And that's where it became, you know, took off. And now today, everyone's known as Bill's Mafia, everything. But yeah, you're the one who gave birth to Bill's Mafia. So you could take pride in all well, your career accomplishments. I, 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 will, I will put that down on my list of accomplishments for my career as something that I will be very proud of. <laughs> all right. I got another Bill's question for you. This is a little more on the serious side here. So from the Doug Marone bolting to the Rex Ryan era and, you know, finally Sean McDermott, not to mention the recent stuff with Russ Brandon. It's been an interesting handful of years for the Buffalo Bills organizationally since Terry Bagula became owner. Based on what you hear, or what you know, what's the league perception of the Bagulas as NFL owners? Well, listen, listen, you're, you're judged by wins and losses, right? And they went to the playoffs last year for the first time in a long time. So, that obviously um, is a feather in their cap, but you know I, I think that they just have the right people. Okay, Sean McDermott does things the right way. Brandon Bean does things the right way. These guys are classy, and they're smart, and they work hard, and you root for people like that. So, again, I think that you know the people that the Pagulas hire—that's an extension of them, and they—they've got some really excellent people in place. And as long as they keep winning, it'll reflect positively on them. And if they don't, it won't. Were you a little surprised that the Bills drafted Josh Allen? Not in the slightest. No. No. You know, I had people a year before the draft telling me, swearing to me, that he'd be the number one overall pick in the draft, that he was the most talented quarterback. And I think, obviously, oh, wow. he fell back some due to his uh, accuracy, his completion rate being as low as it was, 56%. But people that I know and trust revered the guy, loved the guy and thought he'd be the number one overall pick. And, you know, again, even when on the morning of the draft, that story surfaced about racist tweets that he had put out in high school that somebody uh, found and uncovered and exposed him in that regard. I remember going on TV that morning saying, I don't believe it's going to impact his draft stock because there were enough teams that were enamored enough with him that needed a quarterback badly enough that they still were going to make a move for him. And that's exactly what happened. So it didn't surprise me. Frankly, I'm a little surprised he went as high as he did, as low as he did seven. I thought he might go higher than that. So I, I think the bills basically got a bargain. They didn't have to surrender an extra first round pick to move up to get him. And, you know, I think that Josh Allen has the chance, and we'll see how it plays out, but he's got the chance to be a really good quarterback in this league for a really long period of time. One more Bills item, then we'll move on to a couple of things before we wrap up here. As I said before, the Rex Ryan era on the field, it didn't work out, but we all know Rex's personality. We see it every week on ESPN. What's he like at ESPN? He's exactly what you see. I mean, that's just, you, you can't be different on TV or, or in press conferences than you are in real life. He's, he's, honest, he's candid, he's raw, he's brass, crass, whatever the words are. And, you know, he, he, and he knows football. So, you know, Rex is a pleasure to be around. You had a cameo in the remake of the longest yard in 2005. What was that experience like? <laughs> that, you know, well, I, you know, I, I look at that photo in the press box and, and I see some people like Brian Burwell, uh, who are not alive today. Um, and, um, again, these are 
these are the moments that you, you, you think back on. I, I think back on those things as much as any story. And I say, I got to work with some great people back then. And it was a big thrill to, you know, be in that movie with Adam Sandler and Jack Jarrett. I'll tell you a funny story where um, they flew us all out for the premiere and we're walking the red carpet and you know, the, the PR director for the Hollywood company, Chip Namius coordinated that he had been in the NFL with the Houston Oilers and went to work in Hollywood. So recruited some football writers like me and Peter King and John McClain and Jay Glazer, uh, Larry Weissman to go sit in the press box and they fly us out to, uh, LA for the premiere and walk in the red carpet. And, and I had gone to work for the NFL network shortly. What, what, what year was that? Do you, do you have the year 2006? You said 2005, five, Right, so I went, to NFL work, I went to work for NFL Network in four, 2004. So we get out, I'm walking the red carpet, and I hear everybody yelling, Adam, Adam, Adam. And I was shocked, like, that that so many people would be watching NFL Network at that time. Like, I couldn't believe it. And then I turned around and realized that Adam Sandler was right behind me, and nobody was yelling at me. They were yelling at Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. When it's the start of NFL free agency, or maybe really close to the draft, how much on average do you sleep? It seems like you never sleep. You know, I, I, I tell people, I sleep, but I sleep in bursts. That's just, you know, just what my body has gotten used to over time. I'll sleep two hours here or three hours there or one hour here, you know, um, for a variety of reasons. You know, two kids, four dogs, uh, type one diabetic wife. You know, last night my wife you know, got up at two in the morning. Her sugars were low. Um, she had to go take care of that. And, and, you know, I stayed up and make sure she's okay and and so, you know, I went to bed at 11.30, we up at one thirty, two hours, we were up till about four. I had to get up at five to come to ESPN, so I slept an hour there, so it was about three hours spread over the course of the night. And it's just, you know, it's just sort of the life that we have when we're younger and in high school or college, you have fewer concerns and less responsibilities. And I, you know, I, I would imagine there's a lot of people that wake up at night and sleep in bursts and have their own issues and situations to take care of. Now, you're going to deny this. You already have twice, but you've kind of achieved rock star status when it comes to what you do for a living, whether you want to say that or not, I'll say it for you. Are you pretty consistently like you go out for dinner? Do you get hounded for autographs or selfies and things like that when you go to dinner or go to the mall, stuff like that? I, I don't know what you, you would consider that to be, uh, hounded. I mean, there, there are people who are kind enough. I, I always feel like if somebody recognizes you from TV they've they've watched and uh, that, that's, that's a blessing. It's, it becomes a problem when, when, when no one's coming over to you and they're not watching. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. All right. You got me there. All right. I want to wrap this up in a little mini lightning round. I do this with all my guests. I'm just going to ask you a couple, you know, like a handful of random questions. Just give me a quick answer. The first thing that pops in your head. Ready? Yep. Favorite athlete you've covered. Hmm. Shannon Chubb. Favorite non-sports related activity to do. Non-sports related? Yeah. Family time. Favorite city to visit? I've got a soft spot for Chicago and Denver. Uh, any place that I've, I've lived in the past, like I was in Ann Arbor over the weekend uh, with my daughter. You know, I'd love to go back to Michigan. I'd love to go back to Denver where I lived. I'd love to go back to Chicago where I went to graduate school. So any place that I have, I've lived and have had a history with, I love what do you consider the best sports movie ever? Hoosiers. Great choice. What's your favorite song in your iPod or whatever music device you listen to? Like, what do you find yourself listening to the most? Whatever my daughter's listening to. <laughs> so, you know, we listen to a lot of the Disney channel. Okay. So, 
uh, all those songs are really good. If you had never gotten involved in journalism or reporting in any type of capacity, what do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? Nothing that I would have enjoyed anywhere near the way I enjoy my job today, whatever it was. There's nothing that I could have ever done that would have brought me the happiness and fulfillment that this does. All right. Second last question. If Twitter sent you a note and said, Adam, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only, who would you follow and why? Wow. Uh, I'd probably just have to read the newspaper and not pay any attention to Twitter at all. I couldn't just follow one. Okay. Last question here. You could have three dinner guests from any era, anytime, any era, dead I've, or alive. I've used, this, I've used this question before, right? So, I, I you know, I, I would have my grandfather, uh, my poppy Dave, who passed away in 2002. Um, I think I would have John F. Kennedy. And I think I would have my other deceased grandfather, my father's father. So I'd have my mother's father, my father's father, and John F. Kennedy. Okay. Last thing, there's a bunch of Buffalo Bills fans that are going to listen to this. Give Bills fans something to look forward to to 2018. Give them something that they're going to have to look forward to for this coming season. Well, they went to the playoffs last year, and they got a quarterback for the future to build around for future seasons. What could be better than that? True. All right, Adam, great stuff. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me to have someone like you come on and do my podcast. So thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate you having me, and good luck to the Bills this season. All right, that was Adam Schefter from episode number 23. Now let's jump into the second one. Back on episode number 52, September 11th of last year. Here's my interview back then with legendary sports agent, Lee Steinberg. Okay, my guest today is the first true NFL super agent. During his four-decade career, he's represented over 300 athletes including 63 NFL first-round draft picks and the top overall pick a mind-blowing eight times. He's widely regarded as the real-life inspiration for the legendary movie Jerry Maguire, and he's consultant on other Hollywood hits. Like many of us, he had personal demons take a toll on him, but he came out stronger for it. He's the legendary CEO of Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. I'm talking about Lee Steinberg. How are you doing, Lee? It's great to have you on the show today. Happy to be with you. I've done like 52 of these shows now, and every once in a while I get a guest that I get really excited about, so I got to make sure I keep my nerves and everything in check. I want to run down, and it's going to be hard when I do this, because I'm going to run down a sample size, which is some of the clients that you represented. Steve Young, Troy Aikman, Warren Moon, Oscar De La Hoya, Lennox Lewis, Ben Roethlisberger, and a pair of Buffalo Bills Hall of Famers, Thurman Thomas and Bruce Smith. Do you ever find that hard for yourself to believe that you've been able to represent so many legends and hall of famers like you have? I think the key to it is the fact that I try to profile athletes from a character standpoint. And so if someone is willing to retrace their roots and go back to the high school community and set up a scholarship fund, do the same thing at the collegiate level and set up a charitable foundation at the professional level, which makes an impact on the quality of life, that's the sort of person I'm proud to represent. So uh, I've been lucky over the years to have had a pretty superb group who've raised almost a billion dollars for charity. 
I'm a Buffalo Bills guy, so I got to ask you this. How well do you remember first representing Bruce Smith and Thurman Thomas? Oh, it was absolutely great. Um, Of course, the Bills went to four Super Bowls, and the irony there is that they lost, but instead of people saying they were one of the two best teams in the NFL for four years straight, which is a miraculous achievement, you know, the fact that, that they didn't win those games sort of stuck with them, but Bruce was wonderful, uh, ferocious athlete, but very uh, gentle off the field. And um, I think Thurman spent his whole career paying back people that uh, didn't draft him in the first round. Yeah, he did. During your career, you've secured more than $300 billion for your clients. That's unprecedented, but obviously. But also, this needs to be known, too. You've, you've also directed more than $750 million to various charities and projects all around the world. How meaningful is that to you? That really is meaningful. My dad had two critical values he raised us with. The first was to treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world and help people who can't help themselves. So whether it's work done putting the 167th single mother and family into the first home they'll ever own, uh, or Troy Aikman endowing a full scholarship, um, we have an opportunity because of the high profile of athletes to trigger imitative behavior. So when Lennox Lewis did a public service announcement that said real men don't hit women, it could do more to change uh, behavioral uh, attitudes in uh, young rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could. So the product of our practice really is two things, stimulating the best in Uh, young athletes and preparing them to have a really successful second career. And then the role modeling where you can uh, make a real difference in the world. I don't think at the end of the day, people will um, remember so much the amount of the contracts negotiated as, as they will these programs that make an impact on people's lives. Yeah, that's a great point. Let me circle back actually for a second there way back when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Because back then, there was no super agent out there when you were growing up for you to aspire to want to be like. You're right. Uh, the funny thing about it was uh, that there were no role models or mentors because the business in 1975 was so rudimentary. As a matter of fact, teams could just slam the phone down and say, we don't deal with agents. Hmm. They didn't even have a guaranteed right of representation until uh, uh, a few years had passed in the profession. Um, I sort of knew I wanted to be uh, a lawyer and uh, and politics seemed to be in, in my future, but I found that this was uh, much better. I I had job offers uh, for being a district attorney and with some corporate law firms and in politics and in television news, actually. And uh, instead, I fell into something 44 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and here we are. Now, I heard on another interview, I've heard a couple of interviews of yours, that you had, you kind of debated Ronald Reagan before. So I was student body president of Berkeley in uh, 1970, and the Vietnam War was going on, and we were always protesting. And uh, Governor Reagan, uh, I learned everything 
I ever needed to know about negotiating from dealing with uh, the governor who was later president, uh, Ronald Reagan. And later on, he gave me a humanitarian award, uh, but he wasn't giving me many awards in the height of the <laughs> protest. And so yeah, we had some really uh, earthy debates. Do you remember who your first client was? It was uh, Steve Bartkowski, who was the very first pick in the first round of the 1975 draft. Yeah, yeah, I remember him. And I was a uh, dorm counselor going to law school in an undergrad dorm. Well, after I graduated, I was traveling the world, and then Bartkowski had been the very first pick in the first round, and he asked me to represent him, and there there I was, brimming with legal experience, never having uh, practiced before, but, but uh, there was a world football league competing with the NFL, and so we got the largest rookie contract in NFL history, and uh, I still wasn't sure I would do this professionally, but then I saw the power that athletes have, the idol worship and veneration they're held in communities across the country, and I thought, you know, forget politics, we can make a bigger impact in um, uh, people's lives through the fact that they uh, worship athletes. Sure. Is it, let me ask you this, is it, or was it ever nerve-wracking for you to go to a meeting with a potential client? Did you get nervous? And if you did, how did you, how do you go about handling nerves when you have, you know, an important meeting with a potential, you know, big star, a new client? Exactly. I think the key is listening skills so that my job is to is to go deeper and deeper with a prospective client so that eventually I get beyond surface responses. So we're dealing with someone's values, how they feel about short-term economic gain or long-term economic security or family or geographical location for a player, the ability to be a starter, being on a winning team. That constellation of values is going to fit differently into different people's lives. So I've got to draw out another person so ultimately I can understand their deepest anxieties and fears and their greatest uh, hopes and dreams. So people think that suasion and talking is everything. Really, it's listening and trying to form bonds with other people based on uh, what they really feel and what their goals are. And in that way, I can fulfill people. So in terms of nerves, um, I'm so focused on establishing a, a bond and asking probing questions that uh, uh, all my focus is on on that moment. So if you can put yourself into a situation where you're not thinking about the future, you're not thinking about the past, you're not worrying about your cell phone, but all of your energy is focused on whoever's in front of you in this one moment, you can get the most out of every experience. Now, you touched on this a little bit before. One of the things that not just you, but probably a lot of agents out there don't get enough credit for, at least the good ones anyway, is that your job doesn't often end at just getting your guy or, or, or your woman as much money as possible. You know, you also get tasked with helping these athletes set up foundations and programs and way to entrench them into the communities that they're representing, and, you know, and help build their legacy. How much does that mean to you, that part of the job? Um, it's all important. And so I look at an athlete holistically um, as a human being. How can I help enhance um, their life? And so, for example, second career. Um, so you mentioned Bruce Smith. Well, Bruce Smith um, 
owns part of one of the larger luxury hotels in Washington, D.C., and he's president of a construction uh, company. And so by cultivating Virginia Tech, Tech alums, he found some really good mentors that, that helped him that way. Desmond Howard hosts uh, Game Day. Uh, Troy Aikman and, and Steve Young are both on uh, broadcast. Uh, Warren Moon has his own marketing company. We actually had have Ray Childress, who's a retired uh, Houston Oiler, who's mm-hmm. a minority owner of the Houston Texans. Oh, wow. So the focus is how can you make the life after uh, sports uh, not a second kind of death, but but a a exciting uh, experience. I want to talk Hollywood for a minute here now. Okay, let's turn our attention to that. Now, as everyone knows, you're credited with being the inspiration behind Jerry Maguire. When did you first learn about this movie? How did that whole thing go? I mean, at that point, you had kind of already tra- transcended the world of sports agency and became kind of like a, a sports star in yourself. So Cameron Crowe, who was the writer-director of the movie, called me up in 1993 and said he was researching a film that would center on a sports agent and asked if he could follow me around and, and get ensconced into that world. So he started uh, with the league meetings uh, for the NFL back in 93, and he watched what I did, and I introduced him to people. Uh, he went to the draft in 93 where Drew Bledsoe was the first pick. He came to a series of ball games with me, and, and I talked him through things. He uh, came to Super Bowl parties. Uh, he went to pro scouting day with me at USC, and I told him stories, lots of lots of stories. So he went off and wrote a very clever script. And my job as technical advisor was to vet the script to make sure the willing suspension of disbelief, how you know if you're a sports fan that players don't talk that way, the field doesn't look that way. So nothing was in that that would uh, jar you. And then I had the job of working with the actors, putting them into role. And one of them was Cuba Gooding Jr., who I took down to the Super Bowl in Arizona and made him pretend all week that he was my client Uh uh, to put him into role. So I worked with uh, uh, the actor. And I've never, it's in the 21 years since it's been out, uh, I've rarely walked through an airport or been out to dinner where someone didn't come up and uh, either say those four words or ask me to say them that start with show. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, one of my favorite things about that movie is it did feel authentic. You know what I mean? Like it looked like the play, like the quarterback was throwing the ball. You know, there's movies out there sometimes where it might be a football movie, but the quarterback doesn't look like he could throw the ball 15 yards. Well, I actually have to. I actually had to help Jerry O'Connell, who played the quarterback Cush, um, throw a spiral because he had gone to NYU and they didn't have a football team. <laughs> Do you feel like Tom Cruise gave a pretty accurate representation? Oh, I think very much so. When I spent uh, time with him, he um, um, it, it's it's not a biographical story. I started with the first pick in the draft that wouldn't make a very dramatic movie. Right. Um, but, um, uh, but it's based on a, a lot of stories, situations that could have, uh, happened. Um, uh, so what would be my greatest terror the night before the draft where I have prospectively the first pick if he changed agents <laughs> would, <laughs> would be terrifying. So, so some of it's like that, but it, um, 
uh, it was the highest grossing sports film for years and years yeah. until the uh, Blind Side came out, and uh, and from there I went on and and worked with the director Oliver Stone on a movie called Any Given Sunday. One of my favorites. And that, yep. And uh, they originally cast a rapper to play the role of quarterback, but he couldn't throw the ball. Uh, in a way that you would have thought was authentic. So they kept trying and trying, and, and he couldn't do it. And so they had to replace him, and it was with a young comedic actor named Jimmy Fox. Yeah. And that was his first dramatic role. Wow. You know, I read, from, going back to Jerry Maguire for one second, I read that a couple of scenes in the movie, such as Bob Sugar when he swipes in on some of Jerry's clients, and Jerry's wife, after he gets married, complaining after he's on a long road trip, that that kind of hit home a little bit to you, a little close to home? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it, I went through a period in 1985 where the USFL had died, and I had four of the first 12 picks in the draft, and I'm, uh, just gotten married. I'm going from city to city, desperately trying to sign them, but, um, the NFL is determined to roll back the salaries because they don't have to compete anymore. So I'm on the road week after week, and it wasn't really great for the beginning of uh, <laughs> uh, of my marriage. And uh, so yeah, there are lots of human moments, and I think that Cameron saw me re- relate to uh, Tim McDonald and Warren Moon and some different people, and he saw there was real caring in those relationships. Um, and with Warren Moon, we started back in 1978, and by the time we were done, he had played 23 years of professional football. Yeah, wow. So in that time, the the, the you get very, very close with uh, some of the people, and they become real friends. You mentioned Any Given Sunday, which, by the way, is one of my favorite movies, stars Al Pacino. You also helped out on Love of the Game with Kevin Costner and the popular HBO series Arliss. It's another series that I loved. How did you help out with those? Like, Give us a, maybe a cool story or two about either that movie or, or Arliss. Well, um, so let's take Any Given Sunday. So one of my roles was to spend a night with Al Pacino, who didn't know much about... Um, football but was a big boxing fan and so you know i had to sort of uh talk with him about what it would be like to be uh, a coach and and what your relationship was like with players and all the rest of that and i was actually in the locker room and i showed them how to bang their pads you know (laughs) and uh and all the rest of it and uh arliss was different arliss I gave all of the things I could never do in my own life, the the nastiest, most venal things, <laughs> and I gave gave them as plot suggestions. Yeah, <laughs> and they so did. Arliss, <laughs> so Arliss has an affair with the wife of yeah. a client. Now, in reality, that would probably be somewhat suicidal. Right. <laughs> but, uh, or Arliss uh, is involved in a team moving to uh, Los Angeles, and he represents the team, the city. He's got massive conflicts of interest. Right. So um, that one I didn't take screen credit for because I gave them um, so many uh, uh, really nasty ideas. Yeah. Things to not to Arliss. do. Things not to do. Right. But I don't, listen, I don't want to spend any real time talking about your struggles with alcohol in the past or any demons from the past. 
That's not why I sought you out and why I want you on this show. I sought you out because I've always been a big fan and I knew that you could tell some stories to listeners that they would enjoy, maybe inspire some young listeners out there who may want to get in the sports business and management, stuff like that. But I will ask you this one question. What do you think turned it around for you? Like when things in your life on every level were going very bad, what was the point where the comeback of Lee Steinberg began? So I had led a very charmed life, you know, the ability to write best-selling books and be involved with film and having um, 62 first-round draft picks in the NFL and the very first pick eight different years and a big baseball practice and, and boxing and, and basketball. And then in the 2000s, there was a whole sequence of things where my father died of uh, cancer. My kids were uh got a disease that leads to blindness. We lost the house to mold, and then I had problems in my marriage, and, and I turned to alcohol to sort of uh, blunt it. I finally got to the point where um, I remembered those two values in my father, and, you know, being a good father, which I couldn't be because I was uh, uh, too focused on alcohol, and then making a difference in the world, I couldn't do either. So I was... Uh, sitting in my mother's uh, house uh, on my deceased father's bed, sitting there and thinking, and finally I had an epiphany, which is, what am I doing, you know, with my life? Right. And uh, went off to sober living, and and um, I'm now in my ninth uh, year of uh, continuous sobriety. But it's the real quality that's necessary is resilience. It's It's... Life's going to knock you down, um, and it's okay to have a reaction to that. But then can you spring back up and understand that, you know, I'm living in the United States, highest standard of living, a free country, a democracy. I'm healthy, you know, other than drinking. Um, what, what, what really do I have to complain about, and how can I be wasting my life that way? So that's what brought me back. You know, and people, I'll tell you what, people on the outside – who don't, you know, pay attention to the sports agents in the business side as much anymore. They may think that Lee Steinberg's career is in past tense. But if they if they think that's the case, clearly they don't know. Among others, you're the agent for Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes, a first runner last year. Also, Tampa Bay rookie running back Ronald Jones, third is on your list. I imagine this is still fun for you, right? Am I right? Oh, it is. Here you've got this magnificent young guy with great values who's um uh, going to make a big impact in the NFL. And, and so you sort of want to keep the expectations down so that the first time he throws an incompletion, it's not boo. You yeah. know, you'd like, you'd like people to understand that he is uh, having his first year of starting, but he can do freakish things with the ball. I mean, he will do some things on the field that you just haven't seen before. And uh, so ultimately he's going to be a big star. And that's the resurgence, the revival, the resurrection. It just starts new all the time because here's another young man from a great family and, um, and you get to start to journey with him. So it just continues. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to do is to mentor uh, younger people want to break into the field. So we have a agent academy that gives people the chance to try their negotiation skills and their uh, recruiting skills. 
Um, we have a sports career conference we're doing on the 15th in, uh, in uh, New York, which has got the experts from every field. You want to work for a team, a league, a conference, an athletic department, sports television, sports marketing, facilities management, whatever. You can get an exposure. And then we've got an online course that um, people can take that's uh, got 10 modules, but it's got 85 different uh, experts talking about different areas of sports. So what I'm trying to do is mentor a new generation of ethical, principled people who know that sports can be used for good, but also have specific skills. Because, you know, you go to law school or business school or even sports management, and they teach you the concepts or the principles, but they don't teach you specifically how to negotiate or brand or market or negotiate, do um, uh, recruit or do the things that are really necessary. Now, everything you just mentioned there, among all that, you also do some writing for Forbes now, from what I've seen. I've seen a few NFL articles from you. How's that experience I been do. for you? Is that fun? Is something a little different for you? Um, I've been doing it for a number of years. I've written my whole life, and so I sort of wanted – I picked a career that was everything that was fun for me. <laughs> yeah. I like to write. I like to speak. I want to make a difference in the world. I like movies. Um uh, whatever would give an eclectic ability to sort of have fun with a lot of different fields, I incorporated into, you know, being a sports uh, agent and crusade on issues like concussion and, and domestic violence and bullying and, and, uh, you know, I never be able to just sit there and watch wrong occurring in the world and not try to do something about it. Second last question here, okay? What do you want your legacy to be when this is all said and done? When the Lee Steinberg story is over, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, that I tried to make a difference in young athletes' lives and that together we took on basic problems, whether it was at-risk kids or uh, the environment, um, and tr tried to make a positive difference. Last question. When I get a guy like you who's done it all on this show, I, I need to ask. Somewhere out there, there's a youngster listening to this podcast, and he wants to be or she wants to be the next Lee Steinberg. Besides, you know, taking your course, maybe they're not old enough to do that quite yet. What advice would you offer him or her? Study psychology. Everything in life comes down to interactions between people. And so if you can put yourself in the heart and mind of another human being, and see the world the way that they see it uh, through their eyes, you can navigate your way gracefully uh, through life. And uh, try and, and hone listening skills, as we mentioned before. Um, and then make yourself an expert on, on different areas so that you know um, the answer. And then the key is to try to distinguish yourself from the mass. So I'll give you an example. One day, out of the 10,000 resumes we get a year, uh, there was an issue of Sports Illustrated that showed up in the mail. And it looked like Sports Illustrated. It was their font, print type, uh, pictures. Only 
it was sent by a young man, and there was a picture of he and I on the front cover of this. And every article in this uh, phony Sports Illustrated was how our firm had been enhanced because we had hired him. Um, wow. It showed cleverness. It yeah. showed creativity. So the point is, anything in life that you want to do um, that's really exciting is going to be hyper-competitive. So one has to figure out how to elevate yourself above uh, the mass using creativity, thinking outside the square, uh, in a way that will distinguish you from every other competitive person. All right, Lee Steinberg. He's on Twitter now, by the way, at Lee Steinberg. The legend, the OG. This was a great throw, man. A great gift for this podcast. I really appreciate you, Lee. Appreciate your time so much. It's been, been my pleasure. Thank you. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. Man, what a trip down memory lane that was for me. Being able to have people like Adam Schefter and Lee Steinberg on this podcast on a professional level, on a personal level, it's just meant a lot to me. Two people that I've really looked up to for a long time. To be able to interview them one-on-one, what a great thrill that was for me. I'm so appreciative of them. Just like I'm very appreciative of all of you listening, whether you listen to those episodes back when they first aired or whether you're newer to the show and you're hearing them for the first time today, I really appreciate each and every single one of you. If you have not yet done so already, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. When you subscribe, new episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone or to your computer, your laptop, your iPod, whatever you use within just minutes of the release. That's always the benefit of being a subscriber. You're going to get the new episode before anyone else does. I usually have a new show every Tuesday and Friday. Well, not this week. I've done best of volumes Tuesday and Friday of this week. But typically, every Tuesday and Friday, I have a new show. Don't forget to take a second, rain and review the show. I say it every week here. It only takes a minute. It really helps me grow this podcast tremendously. You can find this show pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. By the way, you can also subscribe to our new YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, type in Analytics Podcast, hit that subscribe button there, click that little bell next to it so you get notifications. I'm constantly putting up highlight clips from current and past episodes there. I have some original audio content going up there from time to time as well. Last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back with a new episode on Tuesday. This little run of best of volume episodes is officially over. I'll have plenty of new stuff to talk about next Tuesday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.